0: Well, we are outside <laughs> eating Panini Grill, praise God. And uh, unlike Wendy, most of us don't like being told what to do. Uh, she's definitely a glass half full type of person, right? But the majority of us don't like being told what to do. Uh, I had an experience with this a few years ago. It was actually on Thanksgiving and I was gathered together with my family and extended family and ended up in a conversation with my cousin. Uh, My cousin, uh, he professed to be an atheist, so he said that he believed that there is no God. And he knows me, he knows where I work, and we ended up in a conversation. He was asking me, you know, how can you believe that there's a God when X, Y, and Z? And I went on to just talk to him about the rationality of believing that there's a God, uh, just looking at everything around us and where did it come from, then thinking about, you know, the existence of morality and the moral argument, the fact that there's right and wrong and meaning and purpose. And as we talked, he kind of uh, grew less defensive and said, okay, maybe there is a God. And then uh, he said, but the Bible, I mean, the Bible, this book, you know, God communicating to people through this book. And so we talked a little more about the Bible and why it's very rational to believe that God's communicated through the scriptures, that, you know, the Bibles that we have have been translated once from Greek to English or Hebrew to English there's not all these translation you know texts out there that are getting us to the Bible that we have that we could look at you know the reliability of the Bible how it's historically accurate how it deals with the big questions in life how there's different authors that are all unified in their intent how there are prophecies that have been fulfilled uh, you know how the Bible is a life-changing book it's got God's fingerprints all over it And he kind of conceded, oh, okay. And then he said, but Jesus, you know, the fact that you have to come to Jesus. So we talked about that a little bit more. Of course, Jesus, if you think about it, all of us being imperfect beings, uh, we've fallen short of God's holy standard. How could we possibly reconcile ourselves to God? How could we make ourselves good enough for God? unless God were to solve our problem for us, hence Jesus. And he said, well, you know what? I believe all of that, but I don't want anybody telling me what I can or can't do on a Sunday. (laughs) There you go. Right? Uh, So often people will make this stuff into an intellectual argument when it's really an argument of the will. And the will, our will, doesn't like being told what to do. We don't want anybody telling us what we can and can't do. And this can affect us even as Christians. Uh, As Christians, we can say things like, well, I'll do what God wants me to do, but I'm not going to do what man wants me to do. I'll listen to God, but I'm not going to listen to man. And we forget that often God uses man to tell us what he wants us to do. And that's exactly what we're going to see in our passage. As we wrap up 1 Peter 3, 1 through 6, we're going to see this principle come to life. So turn in your Bibles or pull it up on your phone, 1 Peter 3, 1 through 6. And we're going to read this together and then really focus on the last two verses here as we close out our summer study. Uh, 1 Peter 3, 1 through 6 begins with, Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands so that even if some do not obey the word, They may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Don't let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart. With the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Now, if you're here and you're not married, don't worry. Uh, There are principles here that will apply to you, principles that apply to all women. In fact, principles that apply to all followers of Christ. Uh, Again, we're gonna focus on verses five and six. We've gone through verses one through four in the last couple of months. Uh, just a tiny bit of background. This was written by the Apostle Peter to women, Christian women, that were scattered throughout Asia Minor, uh, modern day Turkey. They lived in a place that was uh, basically hostile to the Christian faith where lots of gods were worshiped. Uh, Greco-Roman gods, the gods of the culture were worshiped. And in that culture, it was expected that a wife would embrace the same God that her husband did. In fact, early Christians were accused of being atheists Because they didn't worship the gods of Rome. They didn't worship all the gods that they had in this culture. And they actually believed that uh, if someone didn't bow to these statues, worship these gods, do whatever they needed to do, then harm would come upon the community or upon the family or upon the household if someone was in rebellion against those gods. So we have these women here that are now Christians, and they're no longer bowing to those gods. And they're living in families and communities where people are frustrated with them, where people aren't giving them the thumbs up for following Jesus. And Peter instructs them how to live, how to live even if their husbands aren't saved or even if their husbands are rebellious or disobedient to the word of God. And he says, how do you do that? Uh, The first thing that he says that you do is you uh, do it without a word. That doesn't mean you don't talk or you don't share the gospel with your husband and your family, but it says that you do it without excessive words. You do it without nagging and pressuring and manipulating and whining. And we looked at that. And then we saw last time that if these women were tempted, as women often are, to think, maybe if I looked better, you know, maybe if I was prettier or cuter, maybe then my husband would respect me more or listen to me or get saved. And that's a natural tendency of women to think if we were packaged cuter or look better, that we would be more effective or that we would get the things that we want. But God said through the apostle Peter to this audience and to us, no, Uh, That's not what God is looking for. God doesn't want us to focus on the outside, but he wants us instead to focus on the inside, the inner person, the beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. The text says, which is precious in the sight of God. Uh, this person who is calm, who's not relying on her external experience, appearance, but relying upon God, depending upon God and his character. And then that leads us to verses five and six, where we're at. This is an example of what this looks like. If you look back at 1 Peter 3, 4, where we left off, it says, in contrast to putting all that focus on the external, in contrast, let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. Now we transition into verse five, for this is how the holy women who hoped in God. So we have the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. And this is how the women who hoped in God lived. This is how a gentle and quiet spirit looks practically. These are women, holy women, holy means set apart. These are believers, women that now belong to God. These women hoped in God. They hoped in God alone. They trusted in God. They trusted in his word. They trusted in his promises. They trusted in him. And that's the first point for us. Trust God to keep his promises holy women who hoped in God, trust God to keep his promises. Because when we hope in God, we're trusting that God or expecting that God will keep the promises that he's made to us. And these women expected God to do as he said. So trust God to keep his promises. Uh, Romans 8, 24 and 25, if you want to jot that reference down and look it up later, It says, hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes for what he sees. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. So this hope, this expectation that, you know, God will fulfill his word that he will do as he said. And then Hebrews 11, one, talking about faith and hope and how they're tied together. It says, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. So that confidence, that assurance, that conviction that God will do as he said, you know, and when it comes to hope, it doesn't really matter how much you hope because you can put your hope in the wrong thing. What matters is who you're hoping in, who you're putting your confidence, who you're putting your trust in, who or what is the object of your hope. Um, I saw hope gone awry uh, years ago when my son um, had a little experience with some store-bought pixie dust. Uh, My son is 35 now, And when he was about six, he was obsessed with Peter Pan. He would watch Disney's Peter Pan constantly. And I made him a Peter Pan costume. And he would wear that thing everywhere. He'd go to Lowe's with his dad or with his uncle, and he'd be dressed up as Peter Pan. And, you know, everything was Peter Pan. We took a visit to the Disney store, and they were selling their pixie dust. And I saw him just fixated on that, this small glass jar filled with this, you know, glistening dust was glitter and had a little, you know, gold bow tied around the top. So $12.99 for 25 cents of glitter. And, you know, he just fixed on that and he thought he had to have that. So, you know, he was six and he did some chores around the house. He saved his money and he kept collecting all the quarters and the dimes that he could until he had enough money to buy himself that pixie dust. Well, he got it, he brought it home, and immediately he went to his room and shut the door. I was like, okay. So he shut the door and I was sitting out in the front living room and I suddenly heard this big thud. And I thought, what in the world is that? And then I waited and I heard again, another thud. After a couple more of those, he comes out of the room and he says, darn stuff doesn't work. And his hair's full of glitter. <laughs> he had really hoped that if he sprayed his head with that pixie dust, you know, it was going to be Peter Pan's dust. And he was going to come out flying through the house, you know, just blowing us all away as he could fly. But you know, he had great hope, but his hope was in the wrong thing. And we're not hoping in pixie dust, right? We're hoping in God. And we're hoping in a God who keeps his promises, a God who the Bible says cannot lie. He doesn't even have the ability to lie. You know, we think that. about that, people will ask us, can God do anything? And the answer is no. He can't. He cannot lie. He cannot sin. He cannot break his word. He cannot break his promises. And that's where our hope lies. And that's where the hope lies for the women that were these holy women that Peter is using for this example. Now, there's some promises that God has made to us that it's important that we really uh, understand and take ownership of. God promises that if we confess our sins to him, he will forgive us. God promises us that no matter what we've done, if we truly take ownership for our sins and we say, God, I have done wrong and I'm willing to turn around, he will forgive us. And that's a big deal thing. Uh, Psalm 32 verse 5, David said, I acknowledged my sin to you and I did not cover my iniquity. So he was saying, I'm not hiding anything back. I'm saying I have done wrong. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. That's Psalm 32, 5. And then Psalm 103, 10 through 12, David writing in the same line, Psalm 103 verses 10 through 12. He says, he does not deal with us according to our sins nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love, his hesed love, unbreakable love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he move our transgressions from us. That's how much God loves us and promises to forgive us when we confess our sin and turn from them he promises to protect us too. Uh, Romans 8, through 35. This is talking to people who have put their trust in Christ. It says, who shall bring a charge against God's elect? At God's people, God's daughters, who's going to bring a charge against you? Romans eight thirty three through 35. Who is to condemn? We know the enemy wants to condemn us. He whispers in our ear all the time of how we're not worthy, how we don't deserve God's love and God's forgiveness and God's favor. And the response to that is, you're right. I'm not worthy, but I'm in Christ. And because I'm in Christ, it says it is God who justifies who is to condemn Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is interceding for us, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? No one. That is God's promise to us, to those who are in Christ. He promises to lead us. He will lead us. Uh, Hebrews ten sixteen. Hebrews 10, 16 says, this is the covenant, a covenant, a pact, a promise from God that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. God has put his law on our hearts and our minds and we know what he wants us to do. We know what's right and wrong. He promises to strengthen us. Philippians 4, 12 and 13 says, I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Whatever circumstance this world brings into my life, I can walk through it obediently. Trusting God, leaning on God because he will strengthen me to do as he calls. The scripture also says that he promises to discipline us. He disciplines us in love when we go off to the right or to the left. He, because he loves us, will discipline us. Uh, listen to Hebrews 12, five and six. It says, have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? So this is saying, because you're a child of God, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. Don't grow weary when he disciplines you for the Lord disciplines the one he loves. And chastises every son whom he receives. God promises that he loves you so much that when you get off course, he's going to discipline you and get you back on track, get you to where you should be. He also promises to hear you, to hear you when you call out to him. Uh, First John 5, 14 and 15 says, this is the confidence. Confidence, something that we know is true. This is the confidence that we have towards him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have made or asked of him. And then he promises to deliver us. He will deliver us. Uh, First or second Corinthians one, eight through 10, Paul talking about just the terrible times that he was enduring and the difficulty that he was enduring and how he was just drained and exhausted. He says, we don't want you to be unaware brothers of the affliction we experienced. We were burdened beyond our strength. We despaired of life itself. We felt we'd received the sentence of death, but it was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God. He delivered us and he will deliver us. On him, we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. God will deliver us even in the most difficult of circumstances. That's the promise that he makes to us. And the ultimate thing that he will deliver us from is death. First uh, 1 Corinthians 1555, oh death, where is your victory? Oh death, where is your sting? Even though our physical shells will come to an end here, we will not die because Christ is victor over death. So holy women, godly women, they hope in God. They trust in his promises. They know these promises. They have them just fixed on their heart and mind. And no matter what happens, they know that God keeps his word. And because of that, because they realize that, because they know that, because of it, they can then yield to authority. And they can yield to not only God's authority, but the authorities that he's placed in their lives. And look at, back at our text, First Peter 3, 5 and 6, it says, this is how the holy women who hoped in God, remember they trusted in God and his promises, they're hoping in God, they used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands. How they used to adorn themselves Remember the last verse there in verse three, don't let your adorning be external. Braiding hair, putting on gold jewelry, clothing you wear. But what do you adorn yourself with? A hope in God that's willing to yield to your own husbands or yield to authority. Not focusing on the outside. Again, there's nothing wrong with being cute or packaging things cute, but that's not where our hope is. That's not our focus. These holy women who hoped in God adorned themselves by submitting to their own husbands. And just as that adorning themselves is repeated in our paragraph, so is this submitting to their own husbands, because it's the exact repeat of the beginning of verse one. Where it says, likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands. Uh, same Greek words used there, hupo tasso. We talked about that in our first session. Hupo meaning under, and tasso meaning arrange yourself. Arrange yourself under your husband's leadership. You gotta arrange yourself in that way. That's God's design for us. And when we hope in God, we're able to yield to the authorities that he has put in our lives. Even on the way here, I was getting on the freeway and I know you guys have all had this happen where you get on the freeway and the car that's driving in the slow lane is driving at the same speed that you are. And you're coming up thinking, okay, someone's gotta give, right? The one merging in is the one who has to give. And so you have to get behind or yield. And that's what that means here. Arrange yourself underneath. Just arranging yourself underneath your husband's leadership. Holy women yield to their husband's leadership, not because their trust is in their husband, but because their hope is in God. And since their hope is in God, they can joyfully yield to their husband's leadership. They trust God to work in their husbands and through their husbands, even in spite of their husbands, because ultimately they know that God is in control. So our submission, if we think about it, then, if we think about the fact that this is literally hinged upon our hope in God, our submission to the authorities that God has placed in our life is ultimately hinged to our trust in Jesus A lack of willingness to yield to our leaders really betrays a lack of willingness to yield to God. It's like we're saying no to God. And if we, like these women, are going to yield to our husbands or yield to our leaders, then we have to let them lead, right? How can they lead if we're not letting them lead? And so the second point here is allow your leaders to lead you, right? If they're your leaders, let them lead. Allow your leaders to lead you. Now think about that Uh, concerning your husband, which is the primary focus of the text. And if you're not married, just the leaders that God has placed in your life, do you allow your leaders to lead you? Do you resist their leadership? Do you make leadership a drag for them? Is it hard? Is it a bummer? Are you bringing them grief? Again, if you're married, by default, your husband is your leader. And you need to yield to them, to him. Your parents... Are your leaders, if you're living at home, you have teachers that are leading you, you have the police that are leaders in our community, we have the government, and if we're Christians, we even have pastors who lead us. Are we yielding to their leadership, or are we making it a drag and a burden? Because how we're treating the authorities in our life, it reflects how much we really trust and are willing to obey God. Now you might think, yeah, but what if these people, what if my husband or my parents or my teachers or the police or the government or my pastors are expecting me to do something that's sinful? Well, then you don't do it, right? I mean, you don't sin. Remember, these women were married to men who were non-believers, men who worshiped false gods, and they wanted their wives to worship false gods alongside them. And Peter was teaching them how you live in a way where you don't have to bow the knee to an idol, where you don't have to disobey God. So we're never called to violate biblical law or violate biblical principle. And what I mean by biblical principle is something that we can extract from the word of God. Uh, Like for example, the Bible says, don't be drunk, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. Uh, I can, biblical principle I can derive from that is don't do heroin, right? I mean, the Bible doesn't say don't do heroin, but the principle is you don't wanna be filled with anything other than the Holy Spirit. So that's what I mean by biblical principle or biblical law. If they're calling you to violate that, then you say no, respectfully no. But if not, we can yield to their leadership. We don't want this school of rock attitude, right? I don't know if you've seen school of rock. I've seen it the DVD and the Broadway show, you know, stick it to the man, right? stick it to the man. We don't want that kind of an attitude. That's not the attitude of this text where we're just going to defy authority and show them that we don't have to do what we're told to do. We can submit or yield to the authorities in our lives because our hope is in God. And as we yield to them, we're ultimately yielding to his will. And remember, that's where this whole argument began. Back in 1 Peter 2.12, we saw this in our first session. Remember the text told us, Peter told us that we want this honorable conduct so that when the world looks at us, they're going to see that we are living right, that we have good deeds, and it's going to woo them to want to be saved themselves. And then 1 Peter uh, 2.13 began with being subject to the government. It says, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be the emperors and on and on and on that we're called as God's people to be subject to the government. And that's why we're holding Bible study outside tonight, right? Unless they're asking us to violate biblical law or biblical principle, we do as they asked. Uh, 1 Peter 2.18, talking about servants, says servants be subject to your own masters. And then 1 Peter 3.1, wives be subject to your own husbands. And this is the principle that God sets up here. Again, unless they're asking us to violate God's law or God's principles, submitting to leadership is a normative expression of one who submitted to God. You know we love others because we love God, and we yield or we submit to others because we submit to God, and we don't do it with angst or with a miserable attitude. And we can see that on the text; it's not something forced or external, but it's from the inside, it's from the heart. Uh, look at First uh, Peter three six. First Peter three six. There says, "As Sarah." obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. Calling him Lord? I mean, that sounds weird, right? Lord. What in the world is she saying here? Uh, She called him Lord. When did she call him Lord? One time in the Old Testament, it's recorded where Sarah called him lord called abraham lord and the hebrew word there where it's recorded is adonai and it's a title of respect you know it's like saying sir or you know master leader it's not saying you're god it's just saying you're my leader Uh, in genesis 18 that's where we find it genesis 18 god sent angels to talk to abraham and sarah and have dinner with them actually And God had made this covenant promise with Abraham and Sarah and Abraham were old at this point, but God had told Abraham that they were going to have a child. Sarah and Abraham would have a child. And it seemed ridiculous at this point. There was no way that they were going to have a kid. They were just too old. And the angels came and said, you know, next year at this time, Sarah will have a son and Sarah's maybe, you know, making food or getting, you know, sparkling water or something LaCroix to serve. And she's <laughs> listening in, you know how you're listening in to other people having a conversation and she laughs. I mean, it's like, pff, right. You know, I'm going to have a son. I'm 85 at this point. Uh, Genesis 18, nine through 12. Uh, let's just look at Genesis eighteen ten. pick it up in the middle here. It says, and Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now, Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So it was done. So Sarah <laughs> laughed to herself saying, after I am worn out, and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? That is the pleasure of bearing a child. So look back at that there in verse 12, Genesis 18, 12. It says, Sarah laughed to herself. This was something that she laughed to herself. This was in her mind. It was in her heart and in her mind. And she said to herself, after I'm worn out and my Lord is old, in her heart, in her mind, she referred to her husband, Abraham, as her leader, as the one that she yields to. It was an inner submissiveness that makes her the example for us. God's saying this isn't something to be external and forced and miserable, but this is to be a mindset where when you look at your leaders, when you look at your husband, when you look at the leaders around you, you see them as your leaders and you're willing to yield to them. And you know what? Abraham was not a perfect leader. He was not perfect at all. In fact, in Genesis 12, Uh, You can read the account later, but in Genesis 12, uh, he was traveling throughout Egypt and Sarah was extremely beautiful. And he was afraid that if Pharaoh saw how beautiful uh, she was, that Pharaoh would kill Abraham and take Sarah as his wife. So he said to Sarah, let's tell Abraham that you're, or let's tell Pharaoh that you're my sister. Well, she was his half sister. And so Sarah went along with it and God protected her, but she was taken into Pharaoh's harem. And then you know what? Abraham did it again. In Genesis chapter 20, the same thing happened again. Abimelech, he saw that uh, Sarah was beautiful and he wanted to take her into his harem. And Sarah said, or Abraham said, remember the sister-in-law thing, right? Right. Or or the sister thing, you're my sister, you're not my wife, to protect him. Uh, What a picture, even from our 1 Peter 3 1 through 6, of a disobedient husband and a woman who is yielding without fear, submitting to him even in her heart. And that's what 1 Peter 3 6 says again. Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you are her children. You are children of the covenant. You belong to God. uh, If you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. In the Greek, that if isn't there. You are her children. Because you are her children, you do good. And you don't fear anything that's frightening. Because you're a Christian, because you're a daughter of God, you do good. And you don't fear anything that's frightening. She viewed her him as her leader in his heart. Now you think about what your view of your husband or those who are in leadership over you is in your heart. I mean, how do you view them? When you look at them, do you focus on the negative? You think she focused on the time that Genesis or that Abraham said, you know, you're my, say you're my sister and say you're my sister again. Or did she focus on the good things about Abraham? Uh, Think about the way you focus on your husband. Do you think about the bad things that he's done? The things that he's done wrong? Or do you focus on the good? Do you think about the fact that he works hard? Or that he goes to church? Or that he's been faithful to you? Or that he's a good son to his dad and his mom? Or that he's a good father to his children? Or that he has a sense of humor? Or that he's smart? Or even the fact that you have a husband or you have the opportunity to display Christ by walking uprightly in a difficult marriage. I mean, all of these things are viewing this rightly rather than viewing it through the wrong lens here. Our sin nature always wants to focus on the bad, on what's wrong, but God calls us to focus on the good. And you know, we even like to share the bad with other people there's a female author that uh, said that she had a code with her friends when they were trash talking someone, especially their husbands, the code would be your slip is showing. Now we don't wear slips very often, right? But I do think about the fact that, you know, you see those dudes with their pants, like down to here and their (laughs) underwears hanging out. And you think, I can't believe they think that looks good, you know? And they're walking around, they got that belt, and they think it looks so cool. Well, that's not cool, right? It doesn't look good. So that's visual of your slip showing. Now, you know, when they're trash talking people or trash talking their husbands or their leaders, just gently saying, you know, your slip showing. You're, you're doing something that doesn't look good, something that should be private, you're exposing it publicly. And it doesn't look good. It's actually pretty gross, right? It's pretty gross when we trash talk our husbands or trash talk our leaders to other people. I mean, that's what the Bible says. It does not look good. So we need to make sure that our slip isn't showing. And if we're gonna let our leaders lead, we need to ask them uh, for their input on things. You know, um, how should I do this? how do you want to do these things? What would you like to see done here? What do you think we should do? What do you think should happen? And, you know, not running to your friends and family, for example, before your husband to get his input. And then if you do get his input, not running to your friends and family afterwards to see if you can get a different view. I mean, when we're doing that, our slip is showing, right? And especially if we do that with him standing right there. You've asked him, what do you you think we should do? He gives you the answer. And then an hour later, you're asking your friend with him standing right there. Your slip is showing at that point. And you might think, yeah, but you know, the slip showing thing or whatever, I wanna be real. I wanna be transparent. You know, I don't, I don't want to be fake. I don't want to be phony. I've got to be real. Well, you know, if you're going to be real, that's great. But don't do it at the expense of other people, especially your husband. I mean, you can find a couple close friends that you can talk to. But the whole thing of trashing your husband or trashing the leaders in your life so that you can be real and transparent, it's not right. It's not appropriate for God's people. It's not appropriate for God's daughters, for Sarah's daughters. Instead, as the text says, we are to bottom of verse six of first Peter three, we are to do good and not fear anything that's frightening. And that's the repeated theme of Peter's letters here is we are to do good. Doing good means following Jesus We're to follow whatever Jesus did, and we're not to fear anything that's frightening. Third point here, we're to follow Christ fearlessly. Follow Christ fearlessly. Uh, That uh, phrase there in the Greek, it really says not fearing anything, not fearing nothing that is terrifying not fearing anything that is terrifying. We are to fear the Lord and not fear what might happen uh, if we follow God. If we follow Jesus in this, things might happen to me. Things might not work out the way I want them to. That's okay. You follow Christ fearlessly without a fear of what might happen. That's what the holy women of God who went before us did. And the text says they're holy women. I mean, it's not just Sarah's example that we have. We have a whole Bible full of examples of holy women who lived without fear, doing what was right and was good. I mean, I like to think of uh, Hannah in the beginning of uh, uh, 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel chapter 1 and 2, Hannah, who wanted a child so bad and begged God for a child and God gave her a son. And she said, if you give me a son, I will give him back to you all the days of his life. And the text says that when the child was weaned, so when he was, you know, stopped nursing, basically, she took him up and gave him to Eli, the priest of the temple to be raised in the temple. I mean, she kept her word there. How scary would that be to take your child, your firstborn son and say, I made this vow to God. And I love how in first Samuel two, it says every year when they would go up to make their sacrifices, she would bring him a new little linen ephod that she had sewn for him. You know, you think about that, you go to Target and you see the sizes of clothes. You know how it's like, here's for a five-year-old, here's for a six-year-old, here's for an eight-year-old. All year long, she was probably thinking about how much he had grown, you know, and needed to sew that new ephod that would fit her son. But she wasn't afraid. She was obedient to what she said she would do and what God called her to do without fear. She didn't worship her kids. She worshiped and feared the Lord. I think of Abigail in 1 Samuel 25, she had a wretched husband. Uh, He was a fool. His name was fool. He was just steeped in folly. He was a drunk. And, you know, he owed hospitality to King David uh, for things that King David and his men did for Nabal, her husband. And uh, he rejected King David. And King David was going to kill Abigail's family as a result. In 1 Samuel chapter 25, Abigail goes out and bows before David and says, let the blame fall on me alone. A fearless woman who risked her life to do the right thing before God, to do good without being frightened by any fear. I think of Ruth, the book of Ruth, the retreat that we did last year was so fun. Going through all four chapters of Ruth, but Ruth, this amazing woman, who loves God, who comes from this, you know, pagan culture and sticks with this kind of nasty mother-in-law. The mother-in-law gives her a plan uh, to take care of herself and Ruth, her her daughter-in-law and tells her, you know, basically go in the middle of the night and, you know, go before Boaz and and, uh, make sure that uh, you make a marriage proposal to him. I mean, that was absolutely culturally out of sync. And she heard this plan of her mother-in-law and said, all that you say, I will do. I mean, she was ready to obey without being frightened by any fear. It didn't matter if she lost her reputation. She submitted to God without fear. I think of uh, Jael or Yaël from the book of Judges. I love the story of Yaël in the book of Judges. She followed her husband Heber. Uh, He left their clan, it says, and it was abnormal for them to move away from the clan, but they left their clan and she traveled up north and yielded to her husband and lived there. And when the enemy of Israel, who was a terrible man, who murdered and raped and did all sorts of things, came to her tent for relief because God had sovereignly placed her there, In that place north of where Israel was, she took the courage to take a tent peg and drove it through his skull, eliminating the enemy of Israel. Can you imagine how scary that would be? But she didn't fear what would happen to her. She feared God and she did what was right. Think of Esther, the young, beautiful Esther who was taken into this Persian harem And then finds out that her people, the Jewish people are uh, under a plot to be destroyed, to be eliminated. And she finds out from her cousin that, you know, the only hope is if she go to the king and make an appeal, but she knew that if she went to the king and made this appeal, she could lose her life. And so she says, you know, if I perish, I perish. I'll do whatever it takes. She submitted to God without fear. And then what about even Mary, the mother of Jesus, another young teenage girl who's told that she is going to be the mother of the son of God. And she says, well, that's interesting. I'm not married. I'm a virgin. How's that going to work? And she finds out from the angel and she realizes that she is going to lose her reputation. She could live for the rest of her life being mocked by her culture because they're all going to say that she had sex outside of marriage as a young teenage girl when she was actually obedient before God. And that's why he chose her for that role. And yet she said, behold, I am a servant of the Lord. Let it be done to me according to your I mean, that's submitting to the will of God without fear, without fear of what's going to happen to me, making it all about me. And these wives, again, these young wives in Peter's audience, many of them were young. They were, you know, younger than 20 years old. And often in that culture, they were in arranged marriages. Uh, They would often be married to 40, 50 year old men as young teenage girls they went into these households where they didn't worship the same gods again. They sometimes never were able to leave those households. And they were still called to obey Jesus faithfully without fear. And you think of, what are we afraid of? Oh, my husband's too mean to our kids. Or, you know, he wants to put my kids in that terrible school. Or, you know, if he doesn't manage the money right, we're gonna lose everything. Or, you know, being with him, I just feel cheated out of a good time, or he doesn't think I'm pretty enough, or I don't feel like I'm getting what I need anymore. I guarantee you, the angels who have seen all of these women, they're not looking down feeling sorry for us as they've seen who's gone before. We need to do things the same way these women did. We follow Jesus without fear. We're led by our leaders because our hope is in God. The God who is in control of heaven and earth. As Proverbs sixteen nine says, the heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. That's saying that even though man may have a plan, it's God who establishes what will happen. God is in control. Proverbs 19, 21 says the same thing. Many are the plans of a mind of a man, but it's the purpose of the Lord that will stand. Proverbs 21, 30, no wisdom, no understanding, no counsel can avail against the Lord. No one can do anything outside of God's will. Isaiah 14, 27, the Lord has purposed and who will annul it? His hand is stretched out and who will turn it back? Isaiah 43, 13, I am he, there is none who can deliver from my hand. I work and who can turn it back? Isaiah 46, 8 through 10, recall to mind, remember the former things. I am God and there is no other. I am God and there's none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not done. My counsel shall stand and I will accomplish my purpose. We could go on and on and on remembering who God is. This God, again, that is in control of every molecule in the universe. Ephesians 1.11, New Testament says that we are predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Now, if all these things are true, if God is who he says he is, if he is the God that is in charge of heaven and earth, and he works all things according to the counsel of his will, what are we afraid of? Why are we so fearful? We don't need to be afraid. We don't need to freak out and get all balled up over the circumstances of this life. The text began, the passage began, the paragraph began with wives, submit or yield to your husbands and ended with a hope in a God without fear. What was the purpose of all of that? So that these men could be one, so that people could be one, so that people could be saved as they look at these godly women and say, wow, there's something different about those women. I mean, they show that they love God by their behavior. It's different than other people. And our ultimate example, we have our ultimate example back in 1 Peter 2 23, 22, and 23. We read it our first week, and that was Jesus. Jesus, it said, he committed no sin, he did nothing wrong, he was blameless. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. He kept entrusting himself to him who judges justly. And you know what? Because of that, lives were changed. My life's been changed. Your life's been changed because of what Jesus did. And that is the power of this gentleness is that when we live the way God calls us to live, people watch people see Jesus. They see God and lives are changed as a result. When we surrender ourselves to the will of God, it makes a difference. So let's wrap up with our final definition of gentleness. Uh, just phrases from the text that we've seen and your group leaders will have these printed out too. Uh, gentleness based on what we've explored in our text from the beginning is a willingness to yield without excessive words, motivated by fear of displeasing God and pure devotion to Christ. Turning from self-confidence to settled trust in Jesus, strength under control, eternal and of incredible worth to God. And I forgot to print the last ones, but I know that the leaders have it. So it was our first point was hoping trusting in God. Right, trusting in the promises of God, willing to be led fearlessly. Yes, our last statement is fearlessly. Yes. Okay, let's pray. God, thank you so much for these ladies, for these souls, for these beautiful women that you have brought here, God. Um I just thank you so much for the women of Compass. God, uh, I know even as uh, Wendy was introducing me tonight, Lord, and just all the kind words that she said, God, I, I, I am dwarfed by the kindness of these women, Lord. These women are so great to work with, just so gracious and kind and loving and willing to do your will, God, I pray that you would pour your favor out upon my friends here, Lord. I pray, God, that you would please help us, Lord, to be women who trust in your promises, that we would trust in you more than ever before, that your promises would be branded upon our heart and mind. God, that we would uh, fearlessly, fearlessly do good, and that we would be willing to be led by the authorities in our life. God, if we're married, that we would begin with our husbands, God. Lord, we truly want to be these women that have these precious, these gentle, these quiet spirits that are of great worth in your sight, God. And we thank you that you tell us how. You've given us your word to explain to us how we can do that. We thank you so much, Lord. We thank you for Jesus. If it weren't for him, we would have no hope. Uh, We would just be completely bankrupt. So we thank you so much for your son, Jesus, and for everything that he's done for us. We pray in his precious name. Amen.